Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Let's go to the phone lines, and Paul is up first. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Morning, sir. I wanted to uh, ask you about killing Roosevelt weed, and I'm assuming that uh, based on what I've heard you talking about before, I ought to be able to do that with diesel. Absolutely. Cutting down the stumps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if it's it depends on how much of it you're fighting. Uh, it is it is a relatively. Uh, I mean, this time of year, it's starting to go to seed, and you definitely want to get those tops off of it before it starts making its jillions of seeds. And if you're in soft soil, you know, five minutes' work with the grubbing hoe will take care of it, but uh, that diesel, you know, will kill it. Follow that up with some molasses, and that's another real good way to do it. But, boy, get after it soon because it's just about to drop seeds, and if you don't get after it now, you'll have three times as much of it to deal with next year. Yeah, I was, uh, the reason I was asking was I had read this uh, paper that A&M had put out a few years ago about killing that stuff, and they, I know, you know, this uh, <clears throat> the remedy stuff is awful stuff yep. to use. Right. And uh, But they recommend you have to use 15% of that along with the diesel. And I'm wondering why they wouldn't have uh, just recommended diesel by itself, or wouldn't they have done field testing on that to see if Well, who, who pays for the research? Who pays for all the stuff they do over at A&M? It's not oh, the tuition. The chemical companies. It is the chemical yeah. companies. <laughs> and yeah. that's and that is a that is a big problem. It's it's kind of as stupid as the uh what the USDA does uh in requiring testing oh on drugs, on herbicides, everything else. So who do they let do the testing on the products? The people that make the products. And yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's just to me that's just like letting the criminals run the court system uh you know how things are going to be favored and maybe i'm a little harsh but i guess i've become a little cynical after as many years as i've been in the business and as much abuse as i have seen of uh the things that they promote to their own economic advantage so anyway that's my opinion and um and, and i think that's why but i have found that uh that the diesel alone does just as good a job without nearly the um, the residue. I mean, Remedy is one of these sulfonated urea-type herbicides that's very hard to get rid of out of the soil. It moves rapidly through the soil. And diesel's nasty stuff. I don't like diesel other than for running my gator and my tractor. But the nice thing about diesel, being a hydrocarbon, it is fairly readily broken down by soil microbes if you simply give them the energy and the chance to do it. So uh, that's the one and only reason that I would resort to diesel and killing things that we don't have another good way to get rid of. But the the good news is you can clean up the diesel. The bad news is you really can't clean up the remedy very well. When you say molasses, you're talking about dry or liquid? Either. What's your, what's your, yeah, carbohydrates uh, are an energy source 
uh, for the microbes. I mean, it's like sugar to a teenager. Any source of it is going to give them abundant energy. And you could use old Coca-Cola. You could use almost anything except honey. Honey is sweet, but it's antimicrobial. That's why you'll never see fungus growing on a jar of honey, no matter how long it sits out. It may crystallize, but you're never going to see anything growing on it, and that's because it's microbial. But any other source of sugar, be it molasses, be it uh, a... You know, just about any type of natural sugar sweetener is going to serve as the energy source to promote a huge boom in the uh, number of microbes out there, which will break down the diesel. So whatever's convenient for you. Uh, dry is definitely more expensive. Dry is definitely easier to use. You're not carrying around uh, liquids and having to pour it on, but... Um, I, you know, if you could go pound for pound for the amount of sugar in it, uh, the liquid is probably 20% of the cost of the dry because it is quite a processing uh, thing that you have to do to make dry molasses. And so much of the dry molasses out there, clumps or cakes, I mean, you could build a Hoover Dam out of most of that stuff after it's been exposed to moisture. The uh, Nature's Guide and the Nature's Creation people seem to have that problem solved. But uh, for the amount of sugar you get, the dry is still much more expensive. But the convenience factor, you know, it makes it worth it for a lot of people. Okay, last question. When I cut these things off, I can't never, I can never get the entire stump cut one cut because it's so low to the ground. Right. <clears throat> I mean, if you cut these things off, six inches, eight inches above the ground and, and kind of dab stuff on each one, that's still going to kill the plant adequately? Well, you really want to kill the roots. I wouldn't worry about dabbing each little uh, stub that is left up. I would just give that root system a soak with it because you're not trying to kill the stem. You're trying to kill the roots and uh, the part that they would re-sprout from below ground level. So I'm not nearly as concerned. In fact, the main reason I encourage you to cut it down at all is to get rid of the seeds before they can be spread. But you're killing the root system, and so doesn't really matter what you do or don't do with the stuff above the ground. All right. I got it. Okay, very good. Well, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Paul. Appreciate the call, and okay. you have a great Sunday. You bet. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Uh, David is up next. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Bob, for some unknown reason, I've been blessed with an abnormal amount of deer droppings on the part of my property that I keep close cut. Right. Is there any nutrient value to that? Sure. There's, you know, it's organic material. It uh, Deer are relatively efficient processors, you know, of, uh, of the things they eat. White-tailed deer, of course, are browsers, whereas uh, axis deer are grazers as well, but their digestive systems do a fairly good job of processing this material, so you're getting a fairly clean, even though it's very low in nitrogen, it's very low in uh, nutrient content, uh, it's high in organic material, kind of like comparing horse manure and cow manure. A horse eats three times as much to get the same amount of benefit from it because the material passes through a horse's digestive system so much more quickly and that's why you're going to have seeds that are still viable come out in horse manure, the, but it is definitely higher in actual nitrogen. Uh, you compare that with cow manure because the cow has a very efficient ruminant system of digestion, and so uh, the material that comes out is far more broken down, doesn't have the potential for seeds to sprout, but it's also very low in, much lower in nitrogen, and cow droppings are going to be the same way. I'm sorry, right, deer, deer droppings. Deer droppings are going to be the same way. 
Okay, Bob. Well, thanks a lot, and you have a great day. <laughs> that that's uh, that's poop one hundred and one. You might say chicken is about the best because uh, uh, it goes through chicken pretty quickly, and the things we feed poultry happen to be much higher in protein for the most part. You end up with a lot more nitrogen in there. That's why with that material, you need to age it. If you had the desire to rake up and or collect uh, the deer pellets, you could dump them right on your garden, your flower beds, whatever you want, with no danger whatsoever of burning. So <laughs> make the most of what you can, David. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. You're, you do the Good same. Night. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. Uh, Maria's next, and then Shirley. Good morning, Maria. Hello, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. My question for you this morning is, also about deer. They've uh, murdered my amaryllis. Yep. They had nice green uh, uh, foliage, and they've uh, gone through and eaten all my foliage, and they've even got down as far as to the bulb. Mm-hmm. Will, that, will that damage my amaryllis? Um, in, in a way, yes. In a way, no. It's time for the amaryllis to go dormant anyway, so I'm not concerned about losing the foliage. Um, if they're where they make an exposed wound like that, it could lead to some rot getting down into the bulb. And if it were me, I would either get a little bit of, uh, now not wettable sulfur, but what they call dusting sulfur. And I would dust it over those wounds. Um, you could use cinnamon, but in this case, I think the dusting sulfur, just a very light dusting on top and do not cover those exposed tops with soil we want those cut areas those uh you know deer can't bite they don't have incisors the way that we do and that is if we still have all our teeth which i'm very thankful to have (laughs) but uh deer can't bite something off cleanly so they grab it and rip it off which means you've got a a pretty good amount of trauma, so to speak, to the bulb there. A light dusting with sulfur and staying dry for a couple of days should keep you from getting any rot problems started. Now, um, I would do two things. I would do my best to keep the deer away from the amaryllis, either with a deer repellent spray or better with a fence, and I would consider venison as a very good thing to have on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Bambi's real cute until Bambi starts messing with Maria's amaryllis. And uh, uh, but no, our overpopulation of deer in the hill country is—I uh, don't know—I I almost think that uh, the game and fish people, at least in the hill country, not in South Texas, because their deer populations are much more control under control down there, but. Uh, they basically, uh, in my opinion, they allow hunters during season to harvest every doe they want to harvest because if we got rid of 80% of the deer, the remaining ones would be much healthier and they wouldn't be starving to death like they are, which uh, means they're going to go just ravage your amaryllis and everybody else's pittosporum and roses and everything else out there that they tend to want to have for dinner. Right. That's what they've done in my garden. Yep. They're nice to look at, but they have done damage. Oh, yeah. Uh, Is it it too late to uh, subdivide those bulbs? Um, If I were, are these the American amaryllis, the red or red and white one, or are they some of the great big bulbs with the fancier colors? 
No, I think mine are the red and white ones. Okay, those are the American amaryllis, and once the wounds have dried, no, this is a fine time to dig and divide them. The uh, big old Dutch amaryllis, the hippiastrum, I would tell you if you wanted to dig those and divide them, you could, but then I would probably wait six weeks before I put them back in the ground until we're past their maybe... 12 weeks until we're past the worst of the cold weather. American Amaryllis, Amaryllis Johnson I, and a couple of hybrids there, uh, they are much more cold hardy. So if you want to dig, divide, and replant immediately or share with your friends, uh, by all means, go ahead and do so. But but let okay. those wounds harden, callous over before you start dealing with them because you don't want to you don't want to inflict more damage you know on them than the deer already done. Yes, yes, that's the first time they've done that. They just ate everything green. Well, hopefully it'll be the last time they do that as well. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much. Always good to talk to you, Maria. Thank you. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone lines. It is going to be Shirley, John, Dawn, and uh, that's D-A-W-N, and Marie. So we start with Shirley. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have a rent house, and I rented it last January 1st with a lease, with instructions to take care of the yard, do this, blah, 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 all that good stuff. And I went over when we had that cold spell to winterize the front faucet Uh and found out that it still had last year's winterizer cap on it. (laughs) How do I... I know these trees are stressing. What can I do to help them? Well, the obvious answer is water them. Okay. Um, Fertilizer will always help. Um, You know, you have to, you know, part of me says, you know, look at, you know, the, the, uh, every acre of my ranch except one gets no significant extra moisture and even the area around my home i've got really well-established plants that have really deep root systems and some things like my boxwood and you know ladybanks rose things like that if they're lucky they get watered three or four times a year so if you have chosen really drought resistant plants they're not seriously damaged they're very thirsty and getting some water will help getting some good nutrition will help build up the sugar level in the sap of the plants and uh, that of course will make them more cold hardy if you feel like damage has been done to the roots products like garret juice or even add a little, little bit of super thrive will really encourage more root growth i don't know of anything that does a better job of encouraging plants to form roots uh more than those products do but mm, the fact that things are still alive tells me that they are pretty well established that you or whoever lived in that home beforehand took care of them and by you know kind of weaning them off extra extra amounts of water um you made them a little bit more drought tolerant and it's partly also survival of the fittest the only things that are left are those that could get a little drier so other than telling the renters that they're going to move out if they don't follow your instructions a little bit better um i I would just give things a thorough watering i would fertilize with a good slow slow release organic fertilizer and then on a selective basis any plants that you think have really suffered i would give them some super thrive and or garret juice okay got it 
Thank you so much. Good luck with that. Um, I know how renters are, believe me. Oh, boy. But that's a whole other story, Shirley. And, uh, you know, it's... uh, It's a whole other discussion, too, but good luck with that one, and thanks for taking care of your plans. Okay. Bye-bye. Goodbye. John's up next. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I was at the uh, Texas Beekeepers Association meeting last week, and Uh uh, this lady walked up, and she was handing out packets, and she gave me a pack of purple leather flower seeds. And I looked it up on the Internet, and I thought, well, I'd call you instead of believing what I was reading there and see when and where and how to plant these things. <laughs> well, it's not a common Texas wildflower, and I have to say I've never grown it, so I'm not going to pretend that I am really familiar with it. But as with most wildflower seeds, you know, you have to consider when Mother Nature ripens those seeds on the plant, and obviously that's the time that nature would be planting the seeds. The problem we have with so many wildflowers is that if we get rains in early summer and then it turns very dry, which is what it did this year, sometimes the wildflowers sprout and start to grow, but without the follow-up moisture, uh, then many times they die. And no matter what the weather does in the fall, we don't get as good a show the next spring. So in some ways, waiting until late fall to throw the seeds out is probably the best idea the other thing to remember with all wildflower seeds is that they really don't need to be buried but they do need to make uh, good contact with the soil so if you're putting them out in an area that has a lot of debris on the soil be it grass clippings leaves things like that go through with a hard rake and at least scratch the surface of the soil so that when you throw the seed out um, it's going to make good seed to soil contact but um beyond that i'm afraid that's a flower that i'm just not familiar enough with i don't believe it has any negative qualities i don't think it's ever become going to become invasive uh there's some seeds i would never plant like the seed for what they call uh clasping cone flower also known as mexican hat also known by a lot of other names botanically it's called ribitida and that's one of those things they consider a fun wildflower in california that i consider a horrible weed on my ranch and i don't believe that's the way it is with your uh uh, leather weed or leather flower. I don't think it's ever going to be a problem to you, but I also don't really know how well it's going to grow in our climate. Okay, okay. Well, that's what I need to know. If the seeds are free, <laughs> you know, and like I say, they don't have any negative qualities, uh, throw them out and evaluate them yourself and let okay. me know what you think of them. Okay, it's a beautiful flower from what I saw. I'm nice yeah. fine, so I thought, what the heck, maybe the bees would like it. I'll plant some up in Dehannis and plant some here see what happens. I absolutely, and if uh, if you feel like you need to know more about it, uh, call old John Thomas up at Wild Seed Farms. Um, okay. Haven't yeah. talked to him in a while. So far as I know, he's doing well. I talked to somebody that drove by the place recently and said they were surprised at how little was growing there. But so far as I know, John's still doing well, and he's a great guy and always happy to answer questions for people that love flowers. So uh, if you need more information, I'd certainly trust him over the Internet because wildflowers are so regional as far as how they do. But I'd love to hear back from you how uh, how they do for you. Okay, I'll see what they do. Oh, I saw, saw something that might interest you a couple of weeks ago in the business page of the paper. Uh, we have a place in Dehannis, and mm-hmm. there are a bunch of uh, big, uh, I forget what the heck they're called, but uh, oleander plants up there. Uh-huh. And we were wondering, how does this guy make a living off of this with agriculture? Because they come in, and they cut them down, and then they let them grow back. Mm-hmm. 
the Frankie family is involved with this right. company. Right. And they're doing cosmetics and uh, all types of stuff with these things. Well, I that was interesting. This had more more than cosmetic. Um, there is a uh, a chemical. You know, much like uh, the Taxol and related uh, pharmaceuticals that are used in the treatment of breast cancer and other cancers. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Taxus, uh, the true you, not Japanese you, not Podocarpus, but Taxus is a very, very highly toxic product. And yet it has been harnessed, so to speak, to do good as far as, uh, you know, cancer control. My business partner is probably alive because of that drug now. Right. Uh, but uh, oleanders are the same way, and I don't think I'm giving away any secrets or, um, you know, speaking out of turn, but there is a, um, a, a part of the sap of the oleander that's called oleandrin, which is being widely used uh, with very promising results in some types of cancer therapy. And uh, that actually is what I happen to be talking about when I tell you that the Stuart Frankie is very much involved in some serious cancer research, but they, uh, uh, they harvest and uh, pulverize, micronize, and extract uh, some material for clinical research from those oleander leaves. That's what they're doing. I'll be darned. Well, it's an interesting operation, I'll tell you that. They've got some neat machines out there harvesting that. <laughs> it's well, something it, to see. It's, uh, thank goodness we have people that are looking for new and natural answers to uh, some of the some of the real serious issues of this world. My, I personally think we, the government should be doing a little bit better job of looking what is causing many of those cancers, which is a lot of the things they're approving to go into our food and onto our plants, but that's a whole other story. But, no, what you're looking at is uh, is a part of a, uh, a research effort to produce a very promising anti-cancer drug that they're still working on. Well, that's good to know. Well, I appreciate visiting with you, and thanks for the information. You have a good day. You do the same, John. Always good to hear from you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Having fun, Karina and I are sitting here trading puns during the uh, <laughs> during the commercial break. But back to talking gardening. It's uh, Dawn Marie James, and get somebody called in on line number one. But right now. Push that button and say good morning. Whoops, uh, the wrong button there. Let's push that button and say good morning, Dawn. Good morning. How are you, Bob? I'm great, thank you. How about yourself? Excellent. It's been a beautiful few days. It has been, and looks like today's going to be another one. Maybe a few more clouds, but at least uh, at least we don't have to wear our long underwear today. I'll put it that way. That's the truth. That's the truth. I have a couple of short questions. One is my mom gave me a beautiful desert rose. Um, last year, okay. and of course, she gave it to me about this time of year, so, uh, well, actually, in January, and so, so there were no leaves on it. Uh-huh. Leaves sprouted in the spring. It was beautiful. Then I had probably a dozen or more beautiful blooms, and then ha- over half of the leaves fell off, and no more blooms. Well, now it's starting to bloom again. Mm-hmm. It's got probably eight or nine buds on it. And I'm not sure what I'm doing right or wrong. <laughs> well, number one, it is a plant that loves heat. If it were 100 degrees every day, that, that plant would be very happy. It gets very unhappy if it gets below about 60 or 65 degrees. And okay. so you want to keep it very warm. In fact, you want to keep it, if Dawn's comfortable, then the Desert Rose is probably comfortable. But if it starts getting down and even in the 40s and 50s, uh, it responds by dropping its leaves. If it actually gets close to freezing, it responds by dying. So okay. it is a great heat lover. It is a great sun lover. 
They are capable of blooming at almost any time of the year. I don't really know. They may, in nature, they may have a dormant period of sorts. If so, it would be a dormancy induced by drying out rather than by temperature. But um, in my experience, and we grow them in our nursery, although I don't have any in my personal collection, but uh, ours seem to grow year-round and seem to bloom year-round. So I'm going to tell you if there's any mistake you're making, they may be getting a little chilled. Um, If you let them get a little too dry, that will probably cause them to drop leaves. But uh, it's certainly not the kiss of death. You know how Desert Rose is with that big bulb at the bottom. It's got a nice water storage organ to carry it through periods of drought. It would be an interesting experiment to see if you can increase the blooming by letting them go dormant. But I don't think it's necessary with those the way it is with, say, amaryllis or many other uh, bulbs that have to go through a dry period in order to bloom again. But uh um, I, I just keep it as warm as you possibly can, as bright as you possibly can. Continue to feed it with a good organic fertilizer, and I would expect it to keep the majority of its leaves year-round and to bloom for you just about any season. How um, how often should I water it? Water it thoroughly whenever the soil is dry on the surface. When you can you know, okay. rub your finger around and the soil is dry on the surface, water it okay. and water it thoroughly. As you hear me say so often, there's no such thing as overwatering, but there is watering right. too often. So when you right. water it, be sure you really soak it because most of the roots are going to be down on the bottom of the pot, and you've got to get those well watered. Uh, as I always tell people, uh, you know, sometimes setting them in a saucer of water, being certain, and of course, after the water's been drawn up, or if it stops being drawn up, empty that excess water out. But right. uh, it's it's extremely important that you water thoroughly, and then when the soil's dry a quarter of an inch deep, it's time to do it again. That will be much less often in the winter when the light is less intense than it will be in the summer. But they're they're super easy to care for and very very rewarding with those flowers. The common one is that just that rich rosy pink color, but there yeah, are the yeah there are some new hybrids out there that are actually. Uh, multicolored within the same flower. There are whites, there are pinks, there are very deep, deep reds. Now, some of these new fancy hybrids are expensive, but uh, we've got at least one company down in the valley starting to produce a lot of very unusual colors. So uh, once you feel like you've really mastered the art of growing what you have, you may be highly tempted by some new things that are on the market out there. Well, I love it. It's a beautiful, beautiful oh, plant, yeah. and it's even even prettier when it blooms. So now I have another question. Okay. Um, I have two gorgeous, huge red oaks in my front yard that I, I can't even begin to tell you how tall they are. They're mm-hmm. they're huge. The acorns that those things throw off are about half the size of a baseball, I think. I mean, they're just <laughs> they're. <laughs> They're really big, and if you stand under the tree long enough, you're liable to get conked. Mm-hmm. Um, about my yard, what do I do with all these acorns? Should I gather them up and throw them out? What I mean, there's just a whole lot of them. Well, let me ask you first of all, are you sure your trees are red oaks? Do they develop a beautiful red color in the fall? Because the acorn yeah. you're describing sounds more like a bur oak. And that thing can approach ping pong ball size, maybe even somewhere between a ping pong and a golf ball. Um, so big, big acorns are much more common on bur oaks than they are on the red oaks. But the red oaks are, 
they're, as Howard Garrett says, they're very promiscuous. They cross with just about any other oak, and uh-huh. some of them will have bigger acorns. Some of them will have smaller. Um, as far, I mean, they're a great protein source. Um, animals, hopefully not your dog, because the dogs no. occasionally get intestinal blockages from eating them. But deer, cattle, all the wild little varmints out there, from raccoons to coyotes to wild hogs, uh, very high in protein, very good nutrient source for wildlife. But in your yard, I, you know, I, I. they're almost dangerous to mow over you can rake them up you can vacuum them up but i'm not going to tell you there's really a good way to compost them if you have a grinder or something you could run them through or you know a chipper and again most of the chippers spit things out at a fairly high velocity so don't stand in front of it or be like somebody throwing a baseball at you but unless you can physically chop them up break them up a little bit and you had a mulching mower not one with an exhaust chute on the side of it uh you could do that and they're high in protein they'd be great additions to the compost pile but if you just dump them whole into the compost pile you may have a whole forest of little trees come up on the other hand, I guess you could um, look in the phone book under wholesale nurseries and uh, just tell you know tell folks that hey I've got some uh, I've got a really really good quality tree apparently has really good genetics and it produces really good acorns and uh, there might be a wholesale grower out there don't know if mortal arrows would be interested in them or uh, again there are a handful of tree growers around why don't you call over to fanix and talk to either mark or mike over there because they deal with a bunch of tree growers across this uh, great state and uh, they might give you the name of somebody that would love to have those acorns because it sounds like i mean red oaks can be wimpy trees or they can be very robust trees. Sadly, they don't have an extremely long lifespan. Uh, biggest one I've ever seen was up in New Braunfels on the property of an old fellow named Otto Loki, and that tree grew for about 50 years. It was about 10 feet across at the base, and then it just folded up and died. And uh, oh, wow. So, unfortunately, they're not going to live four or 500 years like live oaks are, regardless of the good care you give them. But it sounds like yours is probably in the top 5% as far as quality as red oaks go. And uh, if I were a grower, I which I am not, I would love to have a supply of those acorns. But there may be tree growers around who would uh, love to have them and might even trade you a plant or two for a big bucket of acorns. Okay, great. Well, I'll definitely call Fanix and see if... Yeah, see, see if, if they, they have some someone to suggest. They're beautiful. I mean, they're... They're beautiful. They're huge. They're, I mean, they're really good quality trees. So, well, as I, I say, sadly, they're probably about twenty years old now. Yeah, well, they've got a lot of good lives left. So your great grandchildren are not probably going to be able to appreciate them. But right. <laughs> at least, uh, at least the current generation and the next generation, they should benefit from wonderful trees. I would, if you ever you know, learn of or see any oak wilt in the neighborhood, begin that prophylactic treatment every six months or so with the cornmeal to help them develop this immune resistance, or I'm sorry, induced resistance that uh, David Vaughn's going to talk about down at the Garden Volunteers of South Texas tomorrow. And uh, um, so anyway, enjoy your trees, and I hope you find somebody that'd like to grow some of those acorns. At the very least, friends and family, offer them to them and... um, most any good nursery around would give you a stack of empty pots. And if you wanted to, 
for me, it would be a very fun thing to do to, you know, start a few of them and give them away to friends and family. If you decide that you want to start some, it's very important when you have your pots planted, put some chicken wire or something over the top because those bushy tail tree rats that most people call squirrels, they can smell an acre and eight inches under the surface of the soil and they will happily come dig them up and have them for dinner. But I think you've got a lot of fun options to think about. Okay, well, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Don. You have a great week. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's get right back to gardening. And uh, the order's changed just a little bit. It's going to be Marie and Joe and then uh, Bernie and Lloyd. So uh, Marie is up first. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question about pear trees. Okay. I want to plant about three do you have a suggestion as to what kind, and I live in the hill country. All right. Uh, the most important thing about pear trees is to plant trees that are resistant to bacterial fire blight. And trees are actually rated according to their blight resistance. Uh, the, I guess the bad news is that the soft pears that we get at the grocery stores, the Bartlett's and uh, some of those, uh, they are very blight susceptible, so those are not what we're going to plant. We're going to plant the harder pears. Uh, the two most common, one of them is kefir, K-E-I-F-F-E-R. The second one is orient, O-R-I-E-N-T. But there are also a bunch of others. There's one called moon glow that is a very good pear and very blight resistant. Um, there's a relatively new one out called warren, W-A-R-R-E-N is a very good pair. Um, there's one called Comiche, C-O-M-I-C-H-E. Uh, but I, I probably would make two of those trees, uh, uh, one of them the Orient, the other the Kiefer, and then a uh, Monterey Moonglow, you know, one of the others. And um, you always want to have different varieties. Don't plant three of the same one because pears are a tree which absolutely requires cross-pollination to produce fruit. Unlike other fruit trees, we do not prune pears regularly. Pruning them too much uh, encourages uh, the tender growth that is susceptible to fire blight, and we never, ever use synthetic fertilizers. Of course, I wouldn't anyway, but synthetic fertilizers also increase the susceptibility to fire blight, so be sure you stay organic with your fertilizers. Be sure the root flare is exposed, and the good news is that while Plums live 10 years and peaches live 15 years. Pears can live 100 years in the hill country. So with little care from you, you're going to be harvesting lots of pears. And uh, my granddad uh, in East Texas uh, lived in Dallas but had a little farm further east. And he had some old hard pears there. And he made the best uh, the best pear sauce, so to speak, like applesauce, made pear chutney, made pear preserves. Uh, there are going to be a lot of things you can do, even though just to pick them up and eat, they're not as good as what you might get at the grocery store. But uh, pears are a wonderful thing to grow. Okay, that's good information. And like when I'm going looking at trees, how do I know if a tree, a pear and other trees are uh, fresh or new and not like have been sitting there forever? Well, just look at the foliage. I mean, buy them, if you're buying them during the deciduous season, look at the bark. If the bark looks plump and firm, those trees have a good root system. 
when you take them out of the pot, you will want to check for girdling roots and cut any circling roots you find. But, um, you know, again, I would be reluctant to buy a very big tree in a very small pot because of the problem of girdling roots. But if uh, if the pears have foliage on them, look at the newest leaves on the tree. That will always give you the best indication of health. If it is in the dormant season, study the bark. The bark should be very slick and smooth. It should never be wrinkled or shriveled. And, uh, of course, don't buy them in a lumber yard. Buy them from a good nursery. And uh, for most pear t- or for most fruit trees, I'll tell you, Fanics, they are the leaders uh, here in this area on producing quality fruit trees. Okay. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Next up is Joe. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, I got uh, two questions. One, I'm... Uh, it's the fourth year on my jasmine, uh-huh. my Asiatic, and they're not getting thick. Uh, they're very, it's kind of thin. I don't know what to do. How often do you fertilize, week? and how often do you water? Oh, water once a week, maybe. Okay. And I bought some. Uh, I bought some molasses. I bought some hasta has to grow. Okay. And I can't get them to thicken up on me. Well, it's under a tree, but uh, it. Uh, uh, I would tend to use. I think granular fertilizers are longer lasting than liquid fertilizers. I would get a good granular one like Medina's Growing Green or Nature's Creations Premium Lawn Food to get a good organic fertilizer and put it on about four times a year because uh, Asiatic jasmine does like to be fed to really thicken up. But uh, once a week should be adequate on your watering since it's been established. But I think you really need to increase your fertilizing. And I think next spring you'll be amazed how much growth you get. Go ahead and feed this time of year. Uh, Again, good organic stuff. And um, that should really make a difference. Okay, second question. I buried an in-ground pool. Uh and, And I put sod in there. And the sod looks real good. But I can see little pockets of lower. It's lower. Should I put dirt in there, sand, or should I put compost in there to make that even? I want to even it out. Uh, what uh, kind of grass? Uh, St. Augustine. Okay. And if you were to even it out, would you be filling, would you be putting three inches on top or a half inch on top? How much would you need to add? I don't know. It's just got different pockets where it's lower, you know? I'd probably, I'd start with compost. Compost? Yes, sir. Okay. Just good finished compost. It should be, if you stuck your hand in the compost, it should feel cool as opposed to feeling, you know, very warm to the touch. And, um, uh, you, but you, you don't want it still to be decomposing because this can generate some things that would cause a yellowing in the grass. It's not going to harm your grass in any way, but a good, what I would call finished compost. Uh, and again, uh, any of the good brands are going to be just fine, but that's what I'd fill with. It's called finished compost. Yes, sir. Okay. Dirt, no sand or dirt? I don't think you need it at this point. A little bit of red sand if you wanted, but I don't think it's really necessary. If you want to buy it in bulk, go see Stone and Soil Depot. If you want to buy it in bag uh, bags, go visit any good nursery out there, or maybe even that top shelf from HEB. And I appreciate the call. And that puts uh, Bernie at the top of the list. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning. How are you? Okay. I am better than I deserve. <laughs> you and Dave Ramsey. Right, you got it. Uh, okay, my question is on, I've got a couple of ponytail plants, uh-huh. uh, and the tips are brown. What am I doing wrong? I mean, one of them I've had for 45 years, and yep. the other one's a new one. Well, the, 
the brown tips are always a sign that something's bothering the roots. In the case of ponytails, uh, Bocarnia, if you want to be botanically, there are two or three different things, but Bocarnia is the species or the genus that we most commonly call ponytail. It is usually a sign of possibly too little light, which results in their staying a little bit too wet. So um, remember that in nature they are desert plants, and so there is no such thing as too much light for a ponytail. And um, but you know, like most desert plants, they may dry out, but they don't really want to stay dry. So when I see, are, are they sitting in the same place that they've always been, or they've been moved? Yeah, one, well, one's in the place it's been for twenty years. Okay. Yeah. Um, my suspicion is that, uh, check the hole in the bottom of the pot, be sure it's draining and be sure that when you water that you, you know, are really soaking it all the way through, uh, maybe even, you know, if, if you have it sitting in a saucer, even leave water standing in that saucer for a few hours to be sure that the lower part of the pot is thoroughly saturated. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the the light many times contributes, but the way it contributes is it keeps the pots from drying out as quickly as they should. But they sure don't want to stay dry once they have dried out. So uh, I would, again, I would check the hole in the bottom of the pot be sure that it is draining. When I'm growing a plant like a ponytail that can stay in the same pot for many years, I'm always going to take a, dr- a masonry bit on my drill, and I'm going to drill two or three extra holes in the bottom of the pot just to be sure I've got good drainage. But in a nutshell, something is bothering the roots, and the most common cause of that is a water issue. Okay, great. Thank you. And I thank you for the call. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk again. Okay, next up is Lloyd. Good morning, Lloyd. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, got some questions about my sweet potatoes. Okay. Uh, I've got a patch that uh, I have an area, and... Year after year, I just let the sweet potatoes grow and and there and stay in that one part of the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed a little bit last year on some of the sweet potatoes, uh, they had little holes right uh, in them, uh-huh. and I didn't have too many, uh, so I wasn't that worried about it. Uh, this year, of course, with this freeze we had last week, uh, all the leaves had died back, so I right. peeled back some of the vines and. I just grabbed about four of the first sweet potatoes I saw. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess they were maybe a, a foot long, okay. three or four inches across. Yeah. Uh, the ones that were protruding out, oh, uh, the whole area is kind of mulched mm-hmm. also. So they're protruding out, out of the mulch, and maybe half of the potato would actually be in the ground. Sure. Uh, on the ones that were in the ground were nice and smooth and didn't look like had any, any damage by any bugs at all. But the ones sticking out of the mulch, uh, I brought them home and you cut into them. It looked like Swiss cheese. Yep. yep. There was, uh, just tunneled and they're still hard. They're not, they're not mulchy like they had started to rot or anything. Mm-hmm. The potato was still hard, but they're just full of holes. Some have little like worms in them. Yep. Yep. Almost like a, a little maggot. Right. And then right next to it, there'd be a, a hole with like a little black beetle. Yeah. Uh, about three times the size of a, 
I guess, uh, like a bowl weevil or a... Sure, and it's, it's called a sweet potato. It's called a potato weevil or a sweet potato weevil. Uh, you've got three different things that will do that. that. That little weevil is one of the very common ones. The second one is the larval state uh, of a type of beetle that's called a wireworm that looks like a segmented... Uh, it looks kind of like an oversized millipede, but wireworms will get into both sweet potatoes and uh, white potatoes. And the third thing is fire ants. Fire ants uh, love, if they've got something exposed on the surface, they will also tunnel into your sweet potatoes. The good news is that your live beneficial nematodes will take care of all three of those problems. And I would treat your potato patch now or sometime in the next month or so, I would treat in the fall, and I would treat again in mid-spring, as you obviously know how to grow sweet potatoes, but for our listeners that don't, we plant sweet potatoes late in the spring. We wait for the soil to warm up before we plant sweet potatoes, but I would treat with the beneficial nematodes now. I would treat with beneficial nematodes again just before you set out your slips next spring, and I think you'll the, the beneficial nematodes will totally control all three of those problems. Well, I, I did the uh, nematodes in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't done it this time of the year. Yeah, before. I would. It sounds um, like you've gotten, you know, a pretty good colony, so to speak. Of uh, and it may be. It sounds like the sweet potato weevils is what it sounds like to me. But again, the wireworms, the fire ants are both a very common problem. And sometimes it takes more than one treatment uh, to eliminate them because. Uh, the uh, the nematodes don't attack the adult phase. They attack the uh, little grub-like creature that you're describing when it first starts to develop. So your timing has to be pretty good. If, you, if you're putting them out when all you've got is the adult beetles, they're not going to be real effective. Uh, and this is why I can't tell you a really given time of year is most effective to treat, but I would treat two or three times, and I think you'll totally get them under control. Am I doing myself a disservice by keeping the whole area mulch pretty heavy? No, not at all. Give them a, a, a good home to live in when they don't have... Any, any negatives to the mulch are outweighed by the fact that it keeps the soil cooler and helps retain some moisture, which is going to very definitely give you a better crop of sweet potatoes. Uh, feed regularly. Um, if you're, I guess your sweet potatoes are three inches in diameter. That's not a bad size. Sounds like you got pretty new, good nutrition. But um, I, you might consider, you know, a little bit more fertilizer. But I don't think the mulch is contributing to the problem in any way. I think it's uh, it's benefits. No, I don't. I, I don't fertilize my sweet potatoes at all. Well, if anything, I. I don't want to have to harvest as many as I have. <laughs> well, do what I do. Grow them. They they make these fabric beds that are like five feet in diameter, and the sides on them are maybe 14 inches high. I grow my sweet potatoes in those because that way I don't have to grow trying to guess where the tubers are around the garden. I know that I've got, I'm going to have one big bed with plenty of tubers in a relatively small area. And uh, I think if you'll water and fertilize a little bit more, you'll end up with a higher quality sweet potato, and you won't be overwhelmed with trying to figure out where they are. I've got I've got one of them out there. I just noticed when I pulled these vines back that it's about I'm going to say maybe 12 or 14 inches across. Yeah, and it's sticking out about 
eight or ten inches high. Yeah. And uh, it's it's been affected by the bugs too, so I, sure. I wasn't in any hurry to try to dig it up. But, <laughs> well, Mal- uh, Malcolm Beck showed me a there. Malcolm showed me a picture one time of one that weighed forty three pounds, and um, oh, wow. but it's kind of like growing zucchini squash. It's not a contest to see who can grow the biggest one because <laughs> I don't know anybody has an oven big enough. And uh, I like sweet potatoes okay, but. Um, they're not my favorite thing. I don't want to be eating them every night. So uh, I think you're doing it right. But it just, for me, it just makes it easier uh, to care for them and also to know where to go looking for the tubers uh, by growing them in a fabric bed. But you obviously know what you're doing on them. But it's, uh, they're kind of fun to grow, and they're certainly very, very nutritious. And I've gotten to where, you know, if I'm dining out and they're offering french fries or whatever given the option i will always get sweet potato fries because i know they're not genetically modified and there are an awful lot of uh genetically modified potatoes showing up out on the market and the mechanism that they're using to produce these things their great claim to fame is they don't turn brown when you cut them so voila now they can sell us rotten potatoes and we won't know it but uh i love sweet potato fries and even sweet potato chips have gotten to be my choice over regular chips unless I know they're organic because of the uh, amount of uh, genetic manipulation going on uh, with our potatoes, he says. Well, that's what happened to the one good potato I brought to the house the other day is it turned into a sweet potato chips. <laughs> well, sounds like you're doing good things with them. Uh, I noticed uh, one of your other callers, it's been a, maybe a month or two ago, uh, on the jicama they were growing. Uh-huh. They had a, a big vine and no... No tuber uh-huh. on it. Uh, I've got the same thing happening out there in my patch. Um, about half of the patch uh, didn't take off real good. Uh, it grew up. It it flowered and it seeded mm-hmm. fairly early. The uh, the other side of the patch just took off and grew vines just like crazy. Uh, I've got vines out there that are. Oh, as big as a five-eighths-inch rope. Wow! Just going up on the deal, and uh-huh. and they the vines even branched hugely. It they never bloomed during the heat of the summer, until this last little bit, the blooms ended up started to make seeds right when the freeze came and and, and socked them back. Mm-hmm. On those, if you dig down, you just have a, a stalk and a root system with okay. with no. No tube. I no, would no I would tell you that in that case it may be an issue literally of too much fertilizer. Um, I put a little fertilizer in when I plant hecuma, and then I don't fertilize much after that. Um, if you have an excess of nitrogen, which is not at all common in this area, but they are one plant that can go to making all top and uh, no no bulb if they have too much nitrogen in the soil they just want to grow 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 and they're not setting yeah. anything aside for, for you know storage so to speak which is basically what the tuber is or flowering and fruiting so i'm going to cut back on the fertilizer and i'm going to run them a little bit drier because we're we don't want them to be all vine and uh you know, it's kind of like a lot of things, bougainvilleas, even some of the orchids. If you're too good to the plant, it'll respond with all foliage and uh, nothing else to show for it. So a little less fertilizer, water thoroughly when you water. But, um, gosh, the jicama needs 
less, probably a fourth as much water as, say, squash or cucumbers or something like that. And I learned that the hard way, trying to grow them on the same row where I've got an you know automatic uh, pressure-compensated drip. I run them on the row with my tomatoes where I let things get fairly dry. And as a consequence, I usually get you know very good-sized uh, uh, tubers on them. That that makes sense because that part of the 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 row was right next to where I had the my pepper plants. Yeah, and the pepper plants were getting watered more often and fertilized more. So okay, I think then we've I just uh, found the cause of the problem. They leached it over. Okay, it's need to be like my sweet potatoes and not take care of them. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, you know, there's some things that flourish uh, with care and some things that thrive on neglect, and our challenge is always figuring out which is which. Well, I like growing the ones with neglect. I, I'm pretty good about that. I am in the same boat, and I just tell myself it's because I do too many different things, but. Uh, Boredom is certainly not an issue in my life, and uh, unfortunately, some things get neglected that probably shouldn't, but, you know, it's uh, happiest day of my life was when I figured out that if a job doesn't get finished today, most of them wait till tomorrow, and some of them can wait till next week or next month uh, before I get around to them, and uh, this worked well for me for more years than I like to admit. Right. Well, thank you for the advice on the sweet potatoes, Bob. Let me know how you do with them next year, Lloyd. I'll look forward to hearing Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. It's going to be Sarah and Ryan and Miguel and one open line. So good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I was wondering if you can tell me, uh, does temperature affect uh, Medina has to grow in liquid fertilizers? I, I have it out on my back porch, and I'm just wondering if I should bring it in. I wouldn't um, let it go below freezing. Because it is water-based, of course, rather than oil-based. But uh, other than potentially breaking the bottle that it's in, no, temperature is not going to cause any problem at all. Not going to cause any okay. changes uh, in the Medina. But like I say, being a water-based product, uh, and hopefully we're not going to get that cold because, of course, with uh, some of the different carbohydrates and things in the Medina, it's it'd have to get pretty cold to actually freeze. But mm, it's a possibility. Uh, our weather's just, it seems like it just gets crazier. But I've said that every year for a lot of years now. But uh, uh, I bring it in for sure if we're going to be well below freezing. Otherwise, I would do what's convenient. And I have a, a big bag of diatomaceous earth out there also. Mm-hmm. Um, would that be affected by the moisture or anything like that? I know once you put water on diatomaceous earth, uh, it becomes ineffective. You're exactly right. Um, yeah, DE is not hygroscopic in like dry molasses or something. It does not attract water to it. But uh, as okay. long as it is in a dry place, as long as it's not actually getting liquid water spilled, dripped, or poured on it or whatever, it, that's not going to be a problem at all. So, no, it, it's not something... I'm just trying to think of all the different things that get hard if you, you know, if if you leave them out because they actually attract water. But diatomaceous earth is not one of those. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Well, good questions. Thank you for the call this morning. Bye. Bye. All right, uh, Ryan is next. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. It's actually Brian. Brian. Well, good morning, Brian. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) Hey, just a couple of quick questions. Uh, Sago palms in uh, 10-inch pots, 
Uh-huh. They, uh, I got a customer who wants me to transplant them into, uh, I call them whiskey barrels, uh-huh. half cut off. Um, it seems like you told, you said something to somebody a couple, three weeks ago about waiting until the ground was warmer. Is it too cold right now to transplant those? Uh, that's, that's an excellent question, but, and you know me, I always don't, try not to give a yes or no answer, but I like to tell you why. If the something, if you were going to disturb the roots on a sago or any other cycad, or for that matter, any true palm, um, you would not want to do it at this time of year because if you cut or break a root, the root dies all the way back to the base of the plant and then has to start over making a new root, and that's not going to happen until the soil warms up. In your case, so assuming that you can get the sago out of the pot that it's in, and uh, if there's, I mean, if it's hard to get out of the pot, cut the pot instead of uh, forcing right. the sago out. But so long as you don't break up or disturb the root system, uh, it's fine to do it 365 days a year. And girdling roots can be a little bit of an issue, but not nearly as much as they are with woody trees, because uh, um, if you were to ever, you know, cut through and then look under a microscope at what the cross-section of the stem of a sago or the trunk of a true palm looks like, it is a totally different physical structure than a right. woody tree. The xylem and phloem, the vascular tissue, is scattered through the trunk in, uh, in, in bundles throughout the trunk instead of being a distinct uh, xylem on the inside and layer of phloem on the outside. So the way right. we handle those things, the way we treat them, uh, is totally different, but as you know, uh, and I think probably previous caller because we talk about this fairly often. If you had to dig up a sago and move it from point A to point B, you really need to wait till July or August to do that when yeah. the soil was quite warm. But just popping it out of one pot and putting it into another pot or putting it in the ground where you're not disturbing the roots, you do that when it's convenient for you and for your client. Okay, and the other question I've got, and I missed it last spring. I was a little bit late, but I I don't remember when you told me how early in the fall-winter season I could start uh, pruning back my peach trees. Uh, As soon as the leaves are off. You you want the tree to be in its, quote, dormant state. We don't do it while the trees have the potential for sprouting and putting out new growth because we don't yep. want to stimulate new tender new growth that would then suffer from a freeze. But when a peach tree has, when the leaves have formed, that little thing they call an abscission layer and all the leaves have fallen off of them, you've got from that time until the bud starts to swell in the spring. It's not, uh, uh, <laughs> it, it's not a narrow window. You have about a three-month opportunity to get your thinning done on peaches and plums. and. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to aggressively prune these this year, so I just wanted to make sure I did it at the most opportune time. And I was thinking that you told me after all the leaves had fell off. That's that's exactly right. But keep in mind that I always describe, now the first year you prune to shape a peach or a plum. But after that, you're basically thinning rather than pruning. Don't go in and just, you know, cut the whole tree back or you won't have any wood to produce buds and peaches next year. But go through and very aggressively thin the tree out, even more so on plums than you do on peaches. But a big difference in what most people would call thinning and what most people would call pruning. But, uh, no, I think you're probably, we're getting real close to the time to do that. And I need to do a better job this year than I did last year. 
Yeah, these have been in the ground about five years, and uh-huh. I've, I've, I've thinned them a couple of times lightly, but I've not really pruned them, and I don't want them to get too tall or too wide sure. and get too much weight way out on the end of the limbs. Well, Do it's... you think it would be all right to prune them back pretty good? or uh, Again, try to leave... Remember that the, uh, the bud primordia, the things that are going to make the flowers in the spring, have already formed. And so, oh, okay. and and those are going to be, for the most part, in the you know the furthest of six eight inches out on any given limb. And so, yeah. the more of that growth you cut off, the fewer flowers, and consequently, the less fruit you're going to have. So, you know, prune as yeah. you need to, but try not to be taking all of last year's growth off because last year's growth is what's going to produce your flowers and your fruit and. Uh, um, other than some ornamental varieties, we don't grow peaches to look at their pretty flowers or grow them to eat their <laughs> wonderful fruit. So, and, exactly. and I believe me, I know what a busy life is like, but try, it is far better on peaches and plums and apricots and, you know, that whole group, nectarines and, and things like that. It is far better to, to thin them out every year than to go for several years and then have to do a very heavy pruning and thinning and the other thing and this is more true of plums than it is of peaches but if you don't thin them adequately they go into what they call an alternate bearing cycle where you have fruit one year and then no fruit the next that also weakens the tree and shortens their life so try to set aside an hour or two or however long it takes to get through and uh, and do this every year so that you're never faced with having to do it real heavily all at one time. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. You're certainly a wealth of knowledge, and we appreciate it. I have made every mistake it is possible to make. I started working <laughs> at my grandfather's flower shop in greenhouses when I was five years old, and uh, my you know my professional training is as a research biologist. But it it only took me about six years of college to realize that I couldn't stay cooped up in a lab, and I couldn't stand the politics of the university. So I got back into what I love, and I, I still love my teaching, and that's what I feel like I do on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And I appreciate yes, people like you calling and uh, asking me good questions so we have a chance to, to talk about not only what we do but why we do it, Ryan. You get out and have a wonderful weekend. I look forward to our next visit. Thank you, sir. Bye now. Thank you. Okay, line's full now, so hang on a minute before you dial. We're going to talk to Miguel, Reese, John, and James. Uh, good morning, Miguel. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, yeah, I I just bought a fig tree. Okay. A little fig plant in a 15-gallon uh, bucket. Okay. Uh, pot. What would you recommend as a, uh organic fertilizer? I have to tell you, my fertilizer that I use on most things is Medina's Growing Green Fertilizer, or they actually make one for us that we call Landscape Essentials, but uh, uh, my figs do really well on that. I also feel like that Nature's Creation makes a very good fertilizer that they call um, their premium lawn food. Uh, The premium lawn food is alfalfa-based, which means it smells a little bit better than Medina's uh, poultry litter-based, but both of them are great fertilizers. Uh, Have no problem with uh, Meister Gross product they call Texas Tea. Uh, there, There are lots of good organic fertilizers, and figs are not picky. The three things that figs need are lots of light, lots of room to grow, and plenty of water. You give them those three things, and you feed them with good any good organic fertilizer you like. Okay, yes, sir, and yeah, because that's good eating right there. 
Um, you know, can you tell me what variety of fig you planted? I don't. It didn't have the uh, the little card on there. <laughs> okay. But I I just saw the fig. Yeah, I, I gotta have me one of these. Well, very good. Well, there are lots of good varieties out there, and. Um, uh, we'll just wait and see what it produces and go from there. But uh, they're, the only figs that I really don't recommend is highly uh, for the Hill Country, especially some of these new giant figs like the LSU Purple, and some of those are not quite as cold-hardy. But if you're in San Antonio area, um, you're only going to get cold damage one out of every 20 years, and then they're going to come right back from that. So I'm sure you'll do fine. Just remember that other than a dwarf variety, like this one they call Little Miss Figgy, and you're never going to find it in a 15-gallon can probably, but um, other than the dwarf varieties, that fig wants to make a plant that's 8 feet tall and 10 feet, 12 feet wide. So don't plant it right next to the front door or something. It needs room to grow. And other than that, it's going to be great for you. And uh, uh, you should get real good production. Call me any anytime you have questions on it, Miguel. Thank you. Appreciate your help. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Ah, next up is Rees. Good morning, Rees. Good morning, Bob. Uh, good morning. For the call. Thank you for calling. I just have two quick questions. Okay. One is, I have heard you talk on the show about liquid seaweed. Yes. So do you spray all the bushes and the flowering plants with it? Every plant will benefit from liquid seaweed. Liquid seaweed, you know, the the lands of the earth drain to the streams and rivers. The rivers drain to the oceans. Consequently, there are many, many different valuable elements and compounds in seawater. The seaweed, especially the cold water seaweeds, the big kelps, tend to absorb and concentrate this in their leaves. And so that's what uh, are those are the things that are processed to give us liquid seaweed. So I think it is probably the single best source of the widest range of different things. They found almost a 100 different beneficial compounds in seaweed. Uh, about the only negative is it is brown, and if you spray it on white flowers, it will stain them. Uh, some plants benefit more than others. Plants that are not totally cold-hardy liquid seaweed will increase their resistance to freezing, but there's not a plant that I know of that would not benefit from uh, liquid seaweed. Okay, so how do you spray it? Just on the flowers or on the whole bush? Just on, just on the leaves. Just on the leaves. Right. Okay, and how often do we do this, Bob? You know, I think it would be uh, a waste of time to do it more than once every couple of weeks. Uh, but if, they, if you do it once a year, they'll benefit. If you do once a month, they will benefit even more. When we're trying to harden things off for winter, we try to do it every two weeks. But uh, okay. um, I aim for doing it every two or three weeks, and if I get around to doing it once a month, uh, then I'm lucky. But uh, yeah, two to every two to four weeks would be ideal, but anything you're able to do would benefit the plants. Just remember, it is going to leave a brown stain on things, and uh, um, that can easily be cleaned off of leaves, flowers, you just don't spray those beautiful white orchids or things like that while they're in bloom. Or you'll have you'll have brown spots to deal with. But that's the only negative I know of. And uh, they're you know look uh, look at the seaweed you're buying. Things like the one that Medina packages is especially good. But you really want the cold water kelps, and it will usually tell you that somewhere 
on the package. I mean, you could go down to the, you know, Port Aransas and gather up seaweed and wash all the salt off and pulverize it, and it would be good. But these cold water kelps seem to be the ones that are the best at concentrating the nutrients. So your better brands are going to be the ones that use those kelps. Okay. Do you mix it with anything else? Just water. I mean, if you want to add a little bit of uh, fish emulsion, if you want to add a little bit of liquid humate, if you want to add, uh, you know, some other things to it, you certainly can. But I tend to just, you know, two tablespoons of liquid seaweed to a gallon of water, uh, you know, appropriately diluted depending on what kind of sprayer I'm using. Uh, That's my general mixture, and it works extremely well. One gallon of water to two teaspoons of? Two tablespoons. Two tablespoons. Mm -hmm. All right. And the next question was my Meyer lemons. You know, this it seems to be growing like a bush. And I'd that's normal. Have it, pardon me. That's normal. Oh, I see. But if you sure. want to be at a, if you want it to be a tree, you create that with pruning shears. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the thing I have to tell you is a tree takes up less space, and in some cases, maybe a more aesthetically pleasing. But a bush produces the most fruit, so. Uh, if you're limited on space or if you want to have, uh, you know, just a, a nice topiary effect, uh, you prune to your heart's content. You're going to reduce the fruit production, but uh, they certainly can be tru- pruned to make a tree. But if your main interest is getting as many lemons as possible, a bush is always going to give you more than a tree will. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. Always a pleasure. Always and pleasure. Happy Thanksgiving. And to you and your family as well. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Certainly. Bye. All right, uh, next up is going to be John. Good morning, John. Hi, yes, John. Bob. I Come have on. a uh, a kumquat, a, a lemon quat, and a satsuma uh, trees in in the ground, and uh-huh. they, they used to uh, produce prolifically, and for the last two years, they don't even you know, get a couple of buds and no fruit. The problem has been, uh, you know, the cold weather coming at the wrong time. Uh, those are among our most cold hardy of citrus, but twice now, and we'll see how this year it didn't get as cold, but we certainly had an early freeze this year. But your fruit trees, your citrus trees, and really most other fruit trees have already formed the buds, even though they're in a microscopic microscopic stage. They're what we call the bud primordia. And past two years, that hard freeze too early in the year destroyed the flowers before they even had a chance to develop. So uh, about all I can tell you is if you're able to, even though the trees aren't going to be hurt, uh, at this stage, if you can protect them, anytime the temperature is going to get much below freezing, it'll give you a whole lot better flower crop and a whole lot more fruit as a result. Now, that's assuming they're getting, you know, plenty of sunlight. But if they're in the same place they've been, unless the trees have grown over and made it a lot shadier, I think the problems you're seeing are strictly environmental. And um, even though you're not worried about the trees freezing uh, November, December, into January, uh, it would be good to protect them if we have severe cold or if we have uh, cold that follows a period of a lot of warm weather because that's when those little bud primordia get damaged, and that's what really hurts our flower crop in the spring. And what, what uh, what's the best fertilizer for oh, any, any good organic fertilizer? 
that's like saying what's the best uh what's the best cut of beef uh they're all good but uh i i'm not going to single out any one as being better for citrus than the others i do like the ones that have a little bit of extra iron in them and most of your really good brands do have some extra iron because the citrus really do you'll develop a darker green foliage and more productive tree so uh either you know, either put some green sand on them a couple of times a year or look for one of the organics that has a little extra green sand in it. And I think that'll give you the very best results, but they're not picky eaters, so to speak. They'll be happy with anything organic. Now, I, I also have uh, three citrus in pots. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> they will they will flower profusely. And then I seem to drop a lot of small fruit. These are potted citrus. Mm-hmm. And I can't figure out what it is that, that I'm missing or, or doing wrong that they'll have a lot of tiny fruit and then they all drop. Well, it can be uh, if they are all dropping. It could be weather. It could be lack of nutrients. You might want to increase your fertilizing remember too that um anything raised up in a pot where that pot could potentially freeze solid all the way through anything in a pot's more susceptible to cold damage but if you have if you you can have if you have a huge number of little fruit produced and say 70 percent of them drop off that's nature's way of protecting itself from putting on more fruit than the tree can ripen uh, the mechanism for that and it's more pronounced in some plants than others, is as the flower is pollinated, it starts producing something we call ethylene gas that makes other flowers and fruit fall off. Uh, we see this, I first learned about it in orchids, where you may have a spike of blooms where the plant has 15 flowers on one spike, and the plant, evolutionary-wise, has learned it can't support 15 seed pods, so they evolved the technique of the first one that gets pollinated starts producing this gas that will call the, cause the other flowers to fall off before they can you know, start to form seed pods. So that is partly at play in that your trees, not in a knowledge sense, but in a chemical sense, uh, they have a mechanism to keep from making too much fruit. But if the fruit drop is excessive, it's, uh, uh, it, it can be a, a, a weather factor. And what happens, and this, this goes for stone fruits as well as citrus, but the purpose of fruiting in a plant, of course, is to make seed to reproduce. And sometimes if we get the freeze at the wrong time, it destroys the fruit's ability to make a seed. They get up to about the size of a marble, and chemically the tree senses, hey, there's no seed inside of this fruit, so I'm not going to waste my time developing it. So that's one way that having uh, freeze at an inopportune time, the fruit will start to develop. And it may get up to be the size of an English pea, or it may be may get up to the size of a grape before the chemicals in the fruit say, hey, there's no seed in here, and the tree aborts the fruit uh, in favor of the ones that may, be, may have seeds well, developing inside of them. Well, these, uh, <clears throat> the, it's not the, you know, we had this last cold spell, right. and, and my ponderosa lemons did, didn't drop. Uh-huh. So whenever it drops fruit, it's during the summer. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll get a wave of 
of blossoms in tiny fruit, say on the navel orange or on a, a, a little lemon drop that I have. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the same with the ponderosa lime. And it'll form small fruit. And then I'll go out there and, you know, they're on the ground. Are you losing any leaves along with the fruit or just strictly the fruit? Um, well, the ponderosa sometimes leaves, yeah. but the others, in general, leaf loss is not a problem. Well, the the thing is, if you're if you have any number of leaves yellowing and dropping, that tells me they're getting too dry. Um, and uh, I would also increase your fertilizing. You know, just like uh, okay. oh, any anything developing and has a heavy drain on its nutrient load, which is what's happening as a tree produces fruit. It takes a little extra fertilizer, but um, I would increase your watering a bit. I mean, if you're losing any yellow leaves through the summer months, normal to have some yellow leaves in fall and winter, but if you're having any of those leaves yellow or drop, you're not free watering them frequently enough or thoroughly enough. Maybe I need to repot them. And what time of year do you fertilize? Uh, year-round. These are tropical plants that are used to growing year-round, so they want to be fed year-round. Oh, so I, I've typically just been heavily feeding in the the, the fall. Yeah, which is good okay. for spring growth, which is good for flowering and setting fruit, but they need that continuing nutrition to develop that fruit. So, um, yeah, I would be feeding in pots. I'm going to be using liquid fertilizer. I'm going to be feeding monthly in the ground. I'm going to be feeding quarterly at least. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate Have, it. My pleasure, John. Thanks for the call. Oh, just reading and loving this forecast. Cloudy skies early, followed by partial clearing high around 70. <laughs> what a good day this is going to be. Uh, right back to the phone lines. Uh, James is next. Good morning, James. Hello, Bob. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Really appreciate your show, sir. Well, thank you. Sir, uh, me and my grandson uh, uh, bought, uh, Grayson bought a mandarin orange. Okay. He planted two years ago. Uh, he's six years old, and it grows, and it, it gets some blooms on it, but it has never produced fruit. Do they have to have two of them, maybe? Not with most citrus. They'll produce better if they have, uh, you know, two different types uh, or two different varieties. But if it's blooming and not producing fruit, I tend to worry that they're not getting proper pollination. Um, do anything you can do. I mean, put out uh, oh, a little bit of the same thing you put in your hummingbird feeders, just some good sugar water. Plant some things around that tree that would bring in bees that flower, you know, early spring when it's normally in bloom. Um, I My biggest suspicion is you just don't have enough bees, don't have enough pollinators in the area. Because if it's blooming, it should be setting a fair amount of fruit. I have an outside fountain, and uh, I, it's a you know, it's one of those 12-foot tall, and it drips. Right. I mean, bees constantly on that thing getting water. So I believe I've got, I live by a ranch. I believe they've getting plenty of pollen okay uh, you know, but uh better. are you seeing your bees in your summer months or in the very early spring months well really i have feeders but also during the spring i have so many flowers out for them you yep. know they're just uh, uh butterflies and you know bees yeah uh, i just thought maybe i'm it's uh, maybe the soil or something because up here in this rocky area yeah maybe it's 
if the leaves if the leaves look good, it's probably not a nutrient issue. Um, if the leaves are light colored, yeah, it could be lack of iron and lack of phosphorus. But um, uh, I would think about getting in with a little hand paintbrush or something. The, the flowers you can reach actually get in and hand pollinate those. James, let me talk to you off the air for a second. I'm going to put you on hold because I have to get out right on the second for news. Uh, after this, we're going to talk to John D. and Jane. And do have one open line. If somebody wants to grab that, you know the number, 210-599-5555. KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. Yeah, but don't dial right this second because every line is taken. I'm going to talk to James just a little bit more. Then it will be John D. and Jane and Sid. And uh, remind you just a couple of things uh, one more time for those of y'all that weren't listening at 8 o'clock when we started. Uh, our seminar next week, we wrap up our seminar season at Shades of Green next Saturday morning. And it is going to be all about tools, everything you ever wanted to know about uh Oh, gosh, there's just so many improvements out there and so many different tools. But uh, there are a lot of little subtle things that uh, you wouldn't pick up on if you didn't know what you were looking for. So uh, everything from hand tools to digging tools to uh, just a lot of different stuff. That's next Saturday's seminar. It's 945. It's free charge over at Shades of Green. And that will conclude our fall seminar season. The other thing that comes up a lot more quickly is tomorrow, the Essentials of Gardening class with the uh, South Texas Garden Volunteers down at the Botanical Garden, not at the Botanical Gardens, the Garden Center, just down the hill from the Botanical Gardens. They're at the Garden Center. Uh, first program is going to be on uh, the SAWS uh, rebate programs and all. The second half of it, uh, which start about uh, probably about 1 or between 1 and one fifteen. that will be David Vaughn talking about induced resistance in trees. Brand new subject uh, that the arborists are learning about and uh, it just should be a fascinating program. And we're talking about uh, the tree's ability to fight off things like hypoxylin canker and oak wilt and things like that. So uh, if you've never been to one of their programs, they are very, very interesting. They're free of charge, although they welcome a donation to help pay for renting the room. And anyway, that's tomorrow. The overall program starts at uh, noon. You have two different speakers to listen to down at the Garden Center right there on North New Braunfels. Okay, we ran out of time in the two minutes I had off the air to talk to james so you had another question james about your sinisa let's go over that again yes sir uh, everybody around me has the sinisa that is kind of a gray uh, mm-hmm. uh steel color mine is a lime green i don't know if there's different uh, brands of city uh sinisa yes there are there are many different varieties if yours has a greener leaf it is probably uh the name of it is green cloud it has that same beautiful orchid, uh, orchidy colored flower, but the leaves are very definitely much more green. Whereas, uh, oh, things like your your desperado stage and the old uh, native tall growing sage, those all have a much grayer leaf. If yours has a greener leaf, it's probably perfectly normal, and it's probably just a green cloud sage. The name of the of the steel gray. Uh, the probably the best one out there is called desperado. Like the old eagle song. Okay. I'm going to get some of those because it would just look so good in the neighborhood, you know. Oh, man, when they're in bloom. Uh, There is another 
nice looking um, gray leafed one. It's uh, got a little different color flower. It's more of a blue lavender instead of that rich red lavender. Uh, but it is called Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, Lowry's Legacy, uh, named for Lynn Lowry, who did a lot of research and was quite a botanist. But uh, the the densest foliage and the darkest flowers are going to be the Desperado variety. Last question, sir. I have a bunch of knockout roses, and I've got them spinning out in the sun. Uh, what is, what, how do I handle them in the winter, take care of them? I uh, don't need to do a thing except keep watering and a uh, little fertilizer periodically. Knockout roses, uh, they're probably happier in the winter than in the summer because uh, my experience is that they take twice as much water as any rose bush out there. And uh, in the cooler weather, they're using less water, but uh, they should be totally cold-hardy through the southern half of Texas. And uh, you just um, you just water them, take care of them. If you need to prune them, around Valentine's Day is the time to do it. But uh, I'd always give them a little fertilizer in the fall, and if we don't get good rains, I'd be watering them at least every 10 days or so. That's my answer. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, James. Good to talk to you. All right, uh, next up is going to be uh, John D. Good morning, John. Hey, hey, Bob. Uh, I tuned in uh, as you were finishing up the, the call about the uh, pruning the plum tree. Yeah. Uh, I have, uh, I think it's Methany. Yeah, Methany's a good plum. That is, uh, oh, 12, 14 years old, but it was severely damaged in the flood four years ago in the Wimbledon flood uh-huh. and uh, I've just let it go and uh, this last season we had a, a plethora of plums enough <laughs> for me and, and the critters Okay, and uh, it's uh, you know you can hardly get up in it to pick the plums right. uh, I want to start doing some serious pruning and uh, can you give me some hints of where to start well First place I'd start is plant another one, because uh, 12 years, you're looking at a pretty old plum tree, and I'm going to tell you, on average, uh, in the hill country, uh, area around San Antonio, 10, 12, 14 years at most is about as long as plum trees continue to produce. So I'll tell you what to do to get the most out of this older tree for the next couple of years, but I'd sure have a youngster coming on, because... um, it's the law of diminishing returns is going to set in after that many years uh plum trees are gonna start fading out a little bit but the thing about plums as as well as peaches is as i was telling uh, my previous caller the plums are produced on for the most part about the outer six inches of each limb that's the growth that came out last year if you know what you're looking for you can actually look down and see a little change in the bark and you know exactly where they started growing out last spring but that's the growth that's going to have the flowers and consequently going to have the fruit when you are pruning uh, you want to be careful that you're not just going through and taking off all the new growth on the tree because then you won't have any flowers and you obviously won't have any fruit. Uh, as a general rule, what we do with peaches and plums and apricots and that whole group of trees is we thin them more than we prune them. We take some areas and we'll take a whole limb out, small limb, in some cases a bigger limb. We'll take an entire limb out to sort of open the tree up and reduce the overall stress on the tree. We don't go through and just give it a haircut. I mean, I got a haircut this week and uh, uh, she probably 
cut every hair on my head. That's not what you want to do when you're when you're pruning a peach tree or plum tree. You want to thin out and leave some of that growth at its original length, so you'll have the flowers and fruit, and yet others you want to cut way back. So uh, it's more thinning than pruning. And any time the leaves are off of it, we've got uh, about the next two and a half months are going to be the perfect time to get your thinning done. But if I had a 12-year-old methylene plum, I'd be planting a new one or two because uh, that tree's that tree's getting pretty ancient. Okay. Can, can I cut larger branches off? Yes. Okay. And you do not need to use any pruning or pruning sealer or anything like that. I would look at the overall amount of limbs that you're removing and never remove more than about 50% of the uh, foliage-bearing part of the tree. But uh, size, if you've got a big old overgrown tree that you need to change the straight shape drastically, as long as you're not taking out over 50% of the leaves, uh, it should be fine to do that. But just you remember, you're dealing with a senior citizen in the plum world. Great. Well, that gives me impetus to look for new new trees yeah well methylene's a good one uh bruce is a good one santa rosa is a good one uh there's one called green gauge this little bit greener paw uh, plum but very very sweet uh you've got some good choices out there and uh <laughs> you know there as you've as you've discovered i'm envious if you said you have more plums than you could eat because i don't think i've ever had more plums than i could eat i just they're so good so uh uh, anyway, I, call me anytime you have questions. I have, I have 32 cups in the in the refrigerator in the freezer and <laughs> the, the 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 coons and something cleaned all the rest of them off in one night. Oh yeah, yeah. I think the as I say, the raccoons in, invented the internet. They're forming the internet a long time before Al Gore did. <laughs> yeah, they they know when your trees are getting ripe, and they send a message to everybody in the county and invite them over for their picnic. So uh, I'm glad. Yep, and I'm glad you got your share first. You're sure welcome, John. You have a good weekend and. Uh, Ah, let's see. Next up is Jane and then Sid, and then I've got an open line. So good morning, Jane. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Hi, it's a beautiful morning out there. Can't wait to get back out into it. Me too. So I was listening yesterday when you were talking about how to girdle those pesky hackberries. Right. And I didn't catch. I know you said two rings close to the ground as possible and make the rings about a one inch wide. Well, but how far apart are the rings? Well, again, that was because of the type of pruning knife my collar was using. Um, I okay. tend I tend to girdle with a hatchet, and it's not two rings. It's just an area of maybe four or five inches long that I've stripped the bark off all the way around. The only reason... Um, I, that I was telling him two rings is he was used something that is actually called a girdling knife that is made to girdle things. And it's about an inch wide and you can't really overlap because it cuts about a quarter of an inch deep. So if, uh, if you were using something like that, I would do your two rings as close together as possible. But if you're using a machete or, you know, a hand axe or, you know, an actual chopping axe, uh, what you want to do is strip the bark off, not too deep, but strip it deep enough to uh, get rid of that foam pretty much all the way along the trunk, as close to the ground as possible for about five or six inches up the trunk. But the only reason for two rings was just the nature of the knife that he was using to do it. Okay, so five inches long, six inches long, get as close to the ground as you can, right. and 
rip it all off, but don't go in too deep. So we're talking like a half inch or so? No, probably more like a quarter of an inch because the tissue we want to destroy is what is just under the bark. There's a very thin layer of tissue just beneath the bark, which is the tissue that carries the carbohydrates that are manufactured in the leaves, carries them down to the roots. That's what keeps the roots alive. Well, it's called phloem, P-H-L-O-E-M, phloem tissue. And when we disrupt, when we remove the phloem, we've just cut off the nutrient supply to the root. The plant still thinks it's great because the central core of the tree is called xylem, and that takes water from the roots to the top of the tree. Top of the tree doesn't know there's anything wrong. And so it goes on, it leaves out, it goes on growing, it looks absolutely beautiful. But what it doesn't know is that the roots are starving to death because the phloem's been removed. And once roots use up their stored nutrients, the whole tree just folds up and dies overnight. Sometimes that's waiting as long as a year for that to happen. But you'll see no visible change in the tree after you've girdled it, uh, but it gets to a certain point and it dies and does not re-sprout. Okay, so this tree that we're working on, it it has to be a certain diameter before you got that much, right? Well, little bitty ones, no go. Uh, little bitty ones, your best you just rip them out of the ground, roots and all, if you can. Yeah, but if you can't. Well, then uh, you rather use an axe, you, you use a knife, use a pocket knife even. And uh, the, the process is the same, but the, shall we say, the force that's applied to it to accomplish that is much, much less. Okay, okay. Now, I mean, a little bitty one, um, you know, I wait for a rainy a rainy period when the soil's soft and up to maybe a quarter of an inch in diameter. I can usually just pull them out of the ground. Uh, in dry weather, no, that's not possible, but you might be able to girdle it with your fingernail if you have strong fingernails. Okay, okay. And will this process work on any tree I want to get rid of? It won't work on palm trees, uh, which have a totally different structure. won't work on cycads, which have a totally different structure, uh, and maybe some of these weird tropical trees. But all of the nuisance trees you're trying to get rid of, any woody tree, it most definitely will work on. Okay, well, that really helps me a lot. I really appreciate it. So I'm just going to get out there. I have the same experience. I try pulling up the best I can, but some of them, you know, it just they in there too deep. I think maybe they've been cut off before and they yeah. already got a little extra in there. Well, and sometimes it's just a little too long between rainy periods for my choice. Yeah, well, that's the truth. Okay, well, I sure appreciate it, Bob. And then a little while ago, I was going to help you sing Desperado, but I'm going to leave that to you. <laughs> I just won't do it on the air. I, I, I could never imitate the Eagles in uh, that voice. So, uh, uh, And, you know, half the audience is younger, doesn't even know what we're talking about. But you and I will enjoy it. Jane, you have a good day, and we'll talk again. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Well, if you've been getting a busy signal, it would be a good time to dial because I've got two open lines. You know the number, 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Sid and then to Cindy. Good morning, Sid. Well, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I have two questions. One of them is I have a fig tree that I got about three years ago. The first year I had it in a pot, and then we planted it in the ground uh uh, last year, and uh, it seems to be growing okay, but it's never produced any figs. Is it in full sun? Yes. Okay, then you should have figs, uh, you know, this year. I would not 
prune on it at all because all figs produce some fruit on new wood. Um, many figs produce some fruit on old wood as well. I guess maybe I should change that. All figs produce on old wood and some produce on new wood. So let's not do any pruning. Let's go ahead and feed it this fall or winter. And if you're in full sun and have plenty of moisture, you'll have figs this year. Well, now, last year it froze back. Uh-huh. And it's it's frozen again this year. Okay. So, and, and not just the leaves, actually the limbs, the, the trunk, the limbs are frozen as well? Everything's black. Okay. Um, it may be one of these uh, southern varieties, LSU Purple or the uh, LSU Giant, uh, Purple Giant I think it's called. Um, you may need to plant a brown turkey or an Alma or Celeste or one that's a little more cold hardy because yeah, freezing back would destroy the, the bud primordy would destroy the portion of the fig that, that makes your fruit. So that could certainly account for it. Now having the leaves freeze, that's totally normal. Um, but that, that, that trunk or the limbs should remain smooth and brown. It should not be shriveled or black. So if you're seeing, if you're seeing that part frozen, uh, You've unfortunately just got a variety that was meant for somewhere further south. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then the second thing is, this last year I had many, many bees. Uh-huh. And this year I had absolutely, I didn't see any bees. Yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, what can I do to, uh, to try to get them back? Well, you can get your own beehive, <laughs> for one thing. Um, you can plant uh, flowers that are attractive to them. Basically, anything that's fragrant is probably going to have a good deal of nectar. Um, you know, you heard one of my, or if you were tuned in early, I was actually talking to somebody from the Alamo Beekeepers Association, and um, they, uh, you know, they have lists of plants and things. But basically, anything that's attractive to hummingbirds, uh, is going to be attractive to your bees. So plant the the fragrant, sweet-smelling flowers and things as much as you can to bring them in. And finally, you know, try to encourage your neighbors not to be spraying a lot. And uh, these uh, uh, there are a lot of really nasty new insecticides out there called neonicotinoids, which are really, really toxic to bees and you know, the big chemical companies, Bayer and the rest of them that are producing these things, seem to care less about bees. And unfortunately, there are a lot of farmers and ranchers using the neonicotinoids, and consequently, they're killing out a lot of the bees. Uh, so plant everything you can that's attractive to the bees. If you don't um, get enough bees, get together with your neighbors. Maybe get a community beehive uh, they're not that much maintenance, and unless somebody in your family has an allergy to bee stings, where one sting is one too many, um, they're you know they're not aggressive. They're <laughs> a beehive is a bit of work, but uh, it's also a great source of honey. There's some new hives out there that are sort of uh, self-harvesting, so to speak, on the honey. You don't even have to go through the you know the suit and the uh, smoking and everything that you used to have to, to recover the honey. But if your if your main objective is just having more bees around, uh, having a beehive is not a real difficult thing to do. Now, in the past, I've I've planted, uh, oh, what is it, uh, Thai basil plants? Yeah. And, I mean, they would just be covered with yeah. bees. 
but this year uh, there wasn't any. Well, the dry summer set them back to some extent. Unfortunately, lots of spraying on back going on out there, and that has been damaging to the populations as well. Plant some horse mint or something that blooms pretty early in the spring. Uh, one of the monardas, and um, uh, again, if you if you just don't have any bees. Uh, and you can actually, like I say, put out some sugar water, float a natural sponge or a stick or something in it so the bees don't drown getting into it. But if you just don't have any bees around, get together with your neighbors and one or more of you get a neighborhood uh, beehive out there. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, we enjoy your show. Thank you. I appreciate it, Sid. And one thing to remember, too, is figs are not insect pollinated. So that's one thing you should get figs whether you have bees or not. Uh, and same thing's true with many of our garden vegetables like tomatoes and peppers, which are wind-pollinated. But, you know, your citrus, your peaches, your plums, your squash, your cucumbers, there are a lot of things out there that need the bees. And the one other thing that you can do, and I'm sorry I didn't mention this sooner, but read up on what are called mason bees, M-A-S-O-N, these are solitary bees. They don't live in a colony the way honeybees do. And um, we have a lot of native. We have, I think, up to 40 different species of mason bees. And even though there aren't nearly as many, um, the smarter people than I, the experts in the field, tell me that mason bees are actually much better pollinators than the honeybees. And uh, you can do something there. You can actually create uh, the mason bee, and a lot of people call it a cedar bee because the way it reproduces, it actually drills a hole largely into old dead cedars, and that's what it lays its egg down into. You can create the same effect by taking a chunk of wood like western red cedar, which is what is usually sold as rough cedar, or you can uh, find an old cedar limb three or four inches in diameter, put a ring bolt in the top of it, uh, drill a bunch of holes about three-eighths inches up to maybe half an inch in diameter. Some of your mason bees are smaller than others, some like slightly different size holes. But uh, put a ring bolt in the top of it, drill several holes in it, hang it out in the shade, and they will be very thankful that they don't have to be the ones tunneling into that wood. And uh, if you can build up your your local population of mason bees, uh, you will be getting lots of pollination, even though, uh, and, and they're a they're a bigger bee. They they tend to drill holes in the in the rough cedar six by sixes in our seminar house and scare people out there half to death. But they're not an aggressive bee. They're some of them are the size of bumblebees. Most of them are kind of a shiny brown to black bee. But uh, uh, read up on mason bees and do anything you can to encourage them. And uh, they'll help you out with a lot of pollination, even though they're not as visible or as well-known as the uh, European honeybee. Now, with the fig trees, do you need more than one? No. Okay, so they're self-pollinating. They're self-pollinating. Very good. Well, you have a blessed day. You do the same, Sid. It's always fun to talk to you, and uh, we'll talk again. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Cindy and E.T. and Edward and Tim. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning. I have several questions, and one of them is going to be involving Terry doing some work. (laughs) Well, we better get started then. Yeah. Uh, I have a firepower mandina that I want to transplant to a different location. Okay. 
How hard is it to dig up and transplant? How big is, is it? Is it okay to do now? It's two feet. Okay, and how long has it been planted there? Um, about 10 years. Okay. Um, it's This is certainly getting to be the time of year to do it. Just the cooler it is, the less it transpires, the so... Uh, the less stress it goes into. If it's two feet tall, you're going to need to get a root ball that's maybe 18 inches wide. And, of course, you're going to want to break up that root ball as little as possible. But I'm going to rate it at least 95% chance of transplanting successfully. And uh, um, I I get after it whenever it's convenient for you guys. Okay. Yeah, I I just kind of questioned since we already had a freeze, but then we'll have warmer days, and it's just, you know, well, uh, again, the things that that cause a little more stress or a lot of wind, whether it's warm or cold, being too hot and having very low humidity, that's going to increase the transpirational stress. But this is not a huge plant, and uh, Nadinas are pretty tough, so I think you're probably just fine to do it any time now. Okay. And uh, my thinking is I'm wasting my time on my... Tomato, squash, and cucumbers. Even though they have flowers and we're going up to warmer weather, but we keep going back and forth. And I, I've had them covered, mm-hmm. so they're they're still okay. It would, but I think I'm wasting my time. Well, tomatoes are slow to develop. I think you're wasting your time on your tomatoes unless you have some big fruit that just has slow to ripen. Um, my tomatoes, I, I have them protected and they're totally done for. Uh, your squash, however, you know, you can go from flower to fruit, edible size fruit in about three days time. So I, it'll be your choice whether you're wasting your time on your squash and cucumbers. It'll take a little bit more time, but, uh, peppers, eggplant, tomato. No, I think they're through for the season, but just depends on how good a shape your squash and peppers are in. I had somebody in the nursery yesterday bringing me pictures, and they had squash that was, you know, going to be ready to eat the next day. So uh, um, if it's still productive, um, I'm not going to rip them out of the ground yet. Okay, and my green beans, they have flowers on them. Well, see how much, uh, how many beans get set. Um, they, among other things, just your bee activity really slows down and bean production. Um, I, you know, I talked to somebody yesterday about fava beans. I've never grown fava beans, but I didn't realize they're a cool weather bean that will actually take a freeze. So some of those beans out there are just fine this time of year, but, uh, your traditional Southern green bean, uh, that's, that's, it's pretty iffy there. Okay. Okay. The last question I have is on a jatropha that I have in a pot. Of course, we move it in the greenhouse, mm-hmm. and I do I do want to shorten it down, but should I wait till the spring? And this is the one that's tree-like, the jatropha hostata? Um, I don't know about the hostata, but, it, yeah, it's tree-like, and it has a little red uh, flowers on okay, it. Okay, yeah. Um, there, Jatropa is a big genus. There are some weird things. One of them actually has a bulb that looks like a ponytail and, uh, really weird flowers. But anyway, you have the woodier form. Um, you can prune it any time, but the growth is going to be a lot more compact and be much likelier to branch if you do that pruning when the weather is brighter. Uh, and the days are longer. So if you have to make room in the greenhouse, prune it now. 
but I would do my main pruning pretty much about the time it goes back out in the spring. Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And sometimes I've gotten a seed ball on it, mm-hmm. but then and somebody told me that they take that and they just plant that and they get more trees. Um, it's very iffy with the seed, but I will tell you, uh, the, uh, that particular Jotropa really lends itself to air layering. If yours is of any size, you can start all the plants you want through air layers. Okay. Uh, and I just looked at it now. It's got some red flowers on it. Been in the greenhouse. Uh, Greenhouses are wonderful things as you have certainly discovered. Yeah. But this weather, back and forth, back and forth, they don't know what to do. Well, that's kind of like us gardeners. The plants are as confused as we are. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, and you have a great day. You guys do the same, Cindy. It's always good to hear from you. And uh, uh, tell Terry that, you know, just transplanting an andina or two is not too much work for Sunday afternoon. So you guys enjoy it. I know we'll talk again. Um, let's see. Next up is uh, it's E.T. and then Edward and then Tim. Uh, good morning, E.T. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm good, sir. How about you? Well, I'm still kicking. That's a good yeah, thing. I got a question. I got a question about a country. The country. How long does it take for a bear's fruit? Uh, if it is grown from a pecan, it'll take uh, 8 to 10 years before it bears fruit. If it is a grafted tree, it should have fruit by the third year, many times by the second year, occasionally by the first year, because with grafting, you're putting mature wood onto a different rootstock. So those trees can produce almost any time, but if this is one that you or a squirrel planted from a seed, it'll be 8 to 10 years before it starts producing yeah, nuts. It's one of squirrel ones. I found an old pecan seed, you know, sure. something in a pot, and it's about oh, it's about three years old now. It's growing in a big old container pot. So. Sure. Well, ET, you okay. can do this if you want to. You could graft onto it. You could take a you know a good variety, a Mohawk or Desirable or Cheyenne or Choctaw. You could take if you know anybody that's got a a good producing pecan tree. You could graft a small limb or two onto your seedling rootstock and have nuts a lot sooner. Okay, great. Okay, I got another strange, this is a strange question. Uh, <laughs> fish oil, right? You know, that natural is made, right? My, the wife told me to chunk out the bottle, and it's still half full. Can I take some of them caplets and some of them flower pots? Absolutely. Absolutely. Fish fertilizer is, um, and, and, you know, fish oil is a concentrate of uh, just a few portions of what you would get uh, from what we call cold-pressed liquid fish. But, man, no reason at all to throw that stuff away. It's, it's not going to be as good as, say, Alaska's fish fertilizer or something like that, but uh, too good to waste. Yeah, I would uh, I'd very definitely uh, either just, uh, you know, blend it in the soil. I wouldn't throw them on top because they almost would never dissolve. But uh, you can puncture them or you can just uh, put, them, put them in the soil and let them break down. Okay, great. Thank you. I got one other question. This was really for Dr. Kirby. Uh, he mentioned Benadryl for, uh, for, itchy, for itchy dogs. Right. Okay, and uh, like I picked up some allergy relief medicine, but I didn't really look at the label, but it says chlorisomethine on a melodate for, for megagrams. Is that, is that, could is you that use Benadryl? that also for itchy dogs? Okay, hang on just a second. He's in the producer's room, and I'm talking to him. That's not Benadryl. Would that would that have any benefit? Yeah. 
He says you could use it, but just like Benadryl, it only works on 10 or 15% of the dogs. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, because I know the dog's allergic to everything. I think he's allergic to the cat. For <laughs> okay, Bob, thank you very much. You're sure welcome, E.T. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. All right, back to gardening, and uh, we'll probably finish the show up with Edward and Tim. So, uh, good morning, Edward. Hi, Edward. Let's see. Maybe uh, let's do this one more time. Uh, Edward, are you there? Okay, Cream, I tell you what, I'm going to put Edward back on hold. I will let you check with him and be sure he is still there. And uh, I'll go ahead and say good morning, Tim. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I was, I was, I was, I'm doing great. I was in Seguin yesterday and uh, visiting my mom and stopped by a, a decent nursery out there at Greengate. Yeah. Got a few things. There. Yeah, I'll be over uh, there this afternoon checking on the poinsettia crop. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, uh, I picked up a Majesty Palm. This thing is in a nine-inch diameter by nine-inch tall uh, nursery black pot. Uh-huh. I always forget how to convert that to gallons. But um, the plant itself, from the surface of the soil, is about forty inches tall, and this thing is root-bound in every direction it can be root-bound, including okay. up. It's up sideways, at the bottom, the whole deal. So something's got to change. I do have a spot in the landscape, and I've, could you just kind of go through uh, Majesty Palm 101 with me? Yeah, it better be an extremely protected area because it's going to freeze when it gets very cold. So um, not a plant that I would choose for the landscape, but if you've got a really protected courtyard or alcove or somewhere that like that that you could plant it maybe so but it's it's uh more for your summer home down at port aransas or rockport or somewhere like that if you're going to put it in the yard it's got to be in a very protected area or you're you're going to be covering it every time we get uh weather down below about 28 degrees well okay i can tell you right now then i'll just i'll just get a a larger uh much more decorative pot and just making an in and out type of, it looks great <laughs> well that that is uh they're beautiful palms and uh you know you can certainly do that but um yeah i would just go to a you know to a bigger pot and get one of those heavy duty coasters cuz i don't i don't want to pay your chiropractor you to pay your chiropractor all the money you could be spending on other things but uh yeah if you get it on something that you can just roll in and out uh that's going to be fine for about two or three years till it gets too big to do that, and then uh, and then maybe that by that time you'll have that uh, place somewhere way down south you can plant it out. Well, on that, or I'll just I'll just pawn it off on one of my ignorant <laughs> friends. <laughs> Give it to him for a Christmas present. Exactly. What a guy, right? Yeah, exactly. Thanks as always for the help. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Tim. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. All right, bye. Goodbye. All right. Now I think we've got Edward back on. Good morning, Edward. Hey, good morning. Uh, can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. Hey, sounds, hey, sounds good. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be uh, quick and dirty here because we lost a little time. Well, we've, we've got about we have about four minutes, five minutes, so don't feel like you have to rush. Uh, watch how slow I can talk then, okay? <laughs> <laughs> hey, my That's... friend, uh, uh, two, two questions. Question number one, I have some um, uh, jalapeno pepper plants 
and uh, they're about uh, 18 to uh, two feet high. I wrapped them up, uh, put a big old box on top of them during the freeze that we had, and they're still thriving, look mm-hmm. real good. Um, are those salvageable? Can I can I continue wrapping those throughout the winter until uh, late February, early March time? In their native habitat, which is further south than this, obviously, they are perennials that normally live three to four years. So if you can protect them from freezing, uh, yes, you can certainly coax more than one year out of them. I have to tell you that with increasing age, you will have decreasing pepper production. uh, um, So young, vigorous plants are going to produce more peppers in a given period of time than an older, bigger plant is going to. Now, if the plant's bigger, of course, then you may get an equal number of peppers. You just get fewer per limb. So, yes, you can save it if you want to. Uh, You're saving spending a dollar on a new plant next year, so be sure it's worth your time and effort. And too many people I know, they protect them 19 times out of 20, and the 20th time they freeze after they've already put all this energy into it. So, I mean, if it has sentimental value, if it is an exceptionally good pepper, or if you're totally bored and have nothing else to do with your time, (laughs) then you protect it all you like. And uh, normally you can squeeze about, uh, usually about three years of production out of them before they just get so woody they just don't produce enough to make it worthwhile. But... uh, um, it's just a question. I mean, a nice big four inch pepper should cost you a dollar or two or three. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're in, you know, saving a great deal, but it's certainly worth doing if you want to do it. They'll, they'll live for, for about two, three years. Oh, it's just the fun and the challenge. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Well, then go for it. Build a little, uh, itty bitty miniature greenhouse over it if you like. All righty. Uh, second point, uh, my son uh, just purchased some property, and it's got some very mature, oh, about six, seven uh, orange trees, uh, the ones with the big old spines and uh, uh, pricks on them. Okay. And um, uh, and you, I heard you say that in pruning, uh, cutting off the dead wood, you do not have to seal that? No, that okay. is totally correct. Now, Now, have they produced any fruit yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And is are they good oranges? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, then it is very much worth growing. I always worry when somebody tells me that they've just acquired a tree like that because many times the big thorns mean that it is the rootstock growing out, and the rootstock produces a little bitty, very, very sour orange, and unless it she wanted to regraft it, in that case, I'd tell you it wasn't worth the effort. But if this is producing a quality orange, then... Obviously, it just happens to be a very thorny variety, and uh, yeah, yeah. any pruning you do on those, uh, there's zero reason. In fact, uh, sealing the wounds with pruning paint tends to set them back rather than benefit them. The only reason we use pruning paint on anything is just keep out the beetles that carry oak wilt, and quite obviously, an oak tree's, or an orange tree is not going to get oak wilt. Okay, okay, the, so no pruning necessary then. Well, no, no painting necessary. I mean, I mean uh, yeah. sealing, the, sealing the wounds. Right. But I would continue to watch because if this is that good an orange, it probably is a grafted tree, and your son will uh-huh. want to prune off anything that comes out near ground level. But uh, those should be removed completely. And again, no reason to seal or anything, but just don't let it go wild. Don't let it try to sprout out and make a bush because then you may be getting growth from below the graft point, which would not produce a good fruit for you. 
No, th- these are very mature trees. They're uh, like 20, uh, uh, 20 feet tall or so. Sounds like he got a real bonus when he got the property. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as far as uh, uh, at, at um, uh, height of my uh, top of my height, uh, some of those thorns are kind of like almost like at eye level. I can just clip those with some nippers. And... Absolutely. Okay. All and right. wear, and wear, your, wear your construction glasses while you're picking anyway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, thanks, Bob. Appreciate Always. it.